land tax, stamp duty, tenants. Sure, property is great, but there are easier ways to get your passive income, sometimes with franking credits. Through ETFs or exchange-traded funds, you can buy a basket of shares in many different companies in one trade. BetaShares offers Australia's broadest range of ETFs, including income-focused funds, which aim to provide yield-hungry investors with attractive income streams. Discover the BetaShares range of ETFs and how simple they can be to invest in by going to betashares.com.au. Read the relevant PDFs and TMD on the website and consider if the fund is right for you. This is a podcast by the RASC Group. It's for educational purposes only. So please do not make a financial, legal, investment or taxation decision based on solely what you hear in this show. Welcome to the Australian Property Podcast. We're on a mission to be Australia's most trusted property podcast. I'm Owen Rask, founder of the Rask Group. I'm Pete Wargent, author and buyer's agent. I'm Amy Lenardi, and I am a buyer's agent. I'm Chris Bates, ex-financial planner and mortgage broker. Together, we'll take you through every step of your property journey. From first home buyer to decades of property investing. G'day, welcome to the Australian Property Podcast. This is our weekly two cents segment where we're going to take a plain English look at the big three property news stories of the week. I'm joined as usual by the maestro of mortgages, Chris Bates from Blast. Chris, how are we this week? Pete, doing very well and appreciate you coming on at midnight um, over in the UK. So um, well played. (laughs) Commitment to the cause. Yeah, I've just landed in London this week. um, So Epic journey with two toddlers, but um, they've done it a few times now and uh, they're pretty good travellers all up. Um, how are things with you this week? What, what have you uh, been up to? Things are good here. We're at the, the, sick, the family, um, I guess, mini hospital going on here. It's just constant rolling sicknesses um, coming in and out our doors. So, um, yeah, but we're getting through. So that's, uh, that's about as exciting as it's happening in the Bates household. Yeah, well, no news is good news, as they say. So, uh, well, thanks for joining today. Uh, so, every Sunday morning at 7 a.m., you'll get a two cents uh, podcast episode waiting for you in your podcast player. And these are a bit of fun where we cover everything you want to know about the big sort of headlines of, of the week that relate to property. And also, uh, send us in your questions because we always like to try and cover those Absolutely. as well. Um, so we've got three stories this week that we're going to come on to. Um, Chris, before we do that, there's a couple of things that have just popped up late mm. in the week. Um, I think Lantax um, is back in the news. I think we'll do a whole episode on that yeah, next week um, sure. because we don't yet have the details, but it looks like that's going to be back in the news flows, especially in Victoria and probably in New South Wales next week. I think um, the other thing that just has come up this week, and we know with Australia's major banks, we've got this oligopoly where it's a kind of one-in, all-in approach. Um, and uh, there's a couple of things that have happened. One of the major banks is now refinancing uh, loans with a just a, a 1% assessment buffer. So making it a bit easier for those people who are trapped in the mortgage prison on high mortgage rates. And the other thing I noticed, uh, Commonwealth Bank ordering 49 thousand stuff back to the office at least uh, for 50% of their working week. So some pretty big 
uh, things happening there quite late in the week, Chris. Yeah, I mean, I tracked the work from home story all the way back to 2020. <laughs> I'm, I'm obsessed with this story and it feels like the media is... <laughs> you um, love it. You absolutely yeah. love this story, don't you? I think it's really important to to see how this plays out. I, I mean, even, you know, Elon Musk, right? He said it, what was it? Um, It's not ethical, unethical to work from home. Yeah. Um, and um, I just love reading the story about, you know, you've got JP Morgan over in the States and not just here in Australia, obviously overseas as well, what's happening. Um. And I think it's a real tug of war between employees and talent versus the employer and how that um, unfolds really um, changes the property market, right? If it's five days a week in the office, which I don't think it's going to do, we're going to go back to the old world, right? Hugging our capital cities and um, and hugging close to them to save on our commute. If we get this like hybrid thing becoming real mainstream, especially if it's two days a week in the office, um, the, the property market changes, you know, um, its value, it changes its tra- trajectory. So, um, yeah, I think the CBA wants a big one because 50% of the time is a lot. You know, that's three days every four, um, every second week and two days one week, um, unless you want to do half days, which isn't um, very productive. But, um, yeah, the Westpac thing around refinancing is big news. It's big news for two reasons. Um, it won't just be, uh, I mean, we mentioned it there, Pete, Westpac, but, I think all the banks will start refinancing home loans with smaller buffers, right? They're not going to let their competitors have an advantage unless they have to. Um, and what we're also going to, so that means that the mortgage war is going to shift from, um, you know, where it's been around cashbacks and rate. I think it's now going to be really targeting trying to get people who can't refinance, um, you know, due to this mortgage prison. And so it doesn't seem like the mortgage war is going to go away, to be honest, um, which is great news for consumers and pricing. Um and that's we've actually already gone through our clients this week and looked at recent clients coming to us to refinance who couldn't refinance, rerun the numbers, and absolutely we've got a bunch of clients that can now refinance because it's about a twenty percent increase. It's it's a big story. Um, so yeah, let's keep let's let's crack on with it today, Pete. Yeah, well, that will take some of the pressure off uh, some of those people who are resetting from very low fixed rate mortgages to somewhere near a five and a half percent mortgages, which is a hell of a step up. And I think, yeah, the working from home story, more than any other story I can remember, it seems to be so polarizing. When I share the articles online, you get 50 percent of people saying, oh, it's about time, get people back into the office. This is what they're paid for. And then the other half are furious about it, saying, you know, this is bullying. It's... um, you know, pressurizing people back to the office. They're more productive at home. It's really split down the middle. And as you say, most likely, I guess, we're going to end up with some kind of a hybrid model where people work at home maybe two days or three days a week and other times in the office and has a massive uh, knock-on impact to where people need to live or want to live. So we'll definitely keep tracking that as we go on. But certainly National Australia Bank and now Commonwealth Bank are pushing people back towards the office and we'll see if the others follow. So here are the three big news stories of the week then. So firstly, um, an article from the Sydney Morning Herald originally, wealthy parents impacting the housing market. Um, So the bank of mum and dad having an impact on some of those auction results. Secondly, uh, wages growth looks to be peaking now rolling over maybe a bit earlier and a bit lower than expected. So we'll look at some of the implications what that means for borrowers, what it means for policy, and so on. And then thirdly, uh, millionaire migration. There was a report um, that's been talked about a little bit recently. Um, Where are the world's wealthy leaving and where are they moving to? Australia's second on the list for uh, migrant millionaires coming in. So those are the three stories, Chris. So let's kick off with um, subjects I know you've covered previously 
yourself, wealthy parents and a bank of mum and dad. So uh, a couple of news stories recently saying, well, it's, uh, it's adding $100,000 to unit prices in uh, Sydney and other parts of the country where wealthy parents are just adding that 100 k premium by just effectively gifting a deposit or helping first home buyers onto the ladder. Yeah, I mean, I guess it makes sense, right? Parents want to give their kids the best life, right? Um, and then if they can afford to help their kids and they've also done well in property themselves, there's this overconfidence, um, you know, need to sort of want to help their kids. Um, and they've also their property values in recent years have also gone up a lot. Um, and so in their mind, if they can just give the kids a little bit of a head start, it's better for them to get into the market now than, you know, when they can finally save that deposit in five years' time. And so... Um, I mean, there's lots of reports in the bank of mum and dad, you know, which is basically just mum and dad giving money to the kids, um, is the fifth biggest bank um, in the country, right, in terms of lending, which is huge, right? Um, so that we absolutely see it. We do a lot of work with first home buyers. And um, if you look at where their deposits come from, um, a lot, sometimes there's, you know, uh, parents help out with guarantors and things like that, which is usually probably the rarity. But a lot of invest uh, mum and dads might help with 20, 30, 40, 50, 100, multiple hundreds of thousands, you know, depending on the situation. And um, that really is the biggest challenge for first home buyers. You know, they, they, you know, their income's there. They can borrow money. It's just they haven't got the deposit. If you team that with um, a lot of policies recently, no, so no stamp duty. You know, that also, the parents understand that, right? They're reading the papers. They go, God, it's a great opportunity to help my kids right now because, they don't need to pay stamp duty. They just need the deposit. Um, and I can help them with the deposit and they've got 20 grand, I can give them 50 and then they're in the market. You've also got the government 5% deposit scheme. Um, and so there's already a nuts, um, some help there. But, you know, the problem with the bank of mum and dad is it just further exasperates inequality, right? You're basically just, um, you know, perpetuating the, the people who are in the market now who can afford to help their kids and now helping the kids, right? And it's that that divide, you know, not everyone's got the luxury of, you know, the bank of mum and dad helping. And um, that's one of the issues that we see. And then um, when you've got someone who's competing with, a, you know, a bank of mum and dad, it's really hard at the auction when, you know, capacity is really tight and everyone's on a similar budget and then mum and dad jump in and say, well, I'll top you up and I'll, I'll get you over the line. Um, and so I've absolutely seen that play out at auctions. And um, it makes a lot of sense that parents are doing that at the moment, especially when they've done well in property in recent years. There used to be a thing years ago where people would um, go and speak to their parents and say, look, can you act as guarantor on my mortgage? But it, it seems to me from the media stories and certainly from my first-hand experience that most often what people are doing is they're taking their kids along to auction and sometimes gifting them additional deposits, um, which I think does two things. It gives them a bit more uh, purchasing power, but also uh, parents like to offer some guidance because Thinking back to when I bought my first unit or apartment, I did it all myself because I thought, you know, I'm a guy in financial services. I should know what I'm doing. But, you know, I look back and think, see, um, whereas I could have made some mistakes because you don't know what you don't know. Uh, but it seems uh, additional deposit. I think, as you said there, though, um, in Sydney and New South Wales, there's stamp duty concessions up to a million dollars. So a lot of this money is going into apartments. And that's what the media is reporting. Uh, but doesn't that just make it harder for other first home buyers who don't have the luxury of wealthy parents, maybe people who've moved from overseas or uh, parents who just don't have the spare cash? Because I, I know this is something we're already talking about and our kids are toddlers. You know, It'd be great to help them onto the ladder when their time comes. But in a country like Australia where you don't have uh, punitive inheritance taxes or death duties, 
this is just going to be an intergenerational uh, wealth issue or an intergenerational war potentially. Yeah, and I think, you know, people who are in a position where they know that they've got enough money for retirement um, and they know they can afford to help their kids, I do think there's a, a you know, view that we're not going to hold this money to the end of our, um, our life and then give it to our kids when they're in their 60s. And I actually think it's jumping two generations as well um, because, you know, grandparents are looking, you know, at their uh, maybe in their 80s or 90s, right, um, and they look at their kids and they're in their 50s and 60s, right? And then they go, well, why would I want to help them? They've got their house, they're set up. Why don't I just jump that generation and go straight to the grandkids and give them money for a housing deposit? So it's not just bank of mum and dad, it's bank of um, grandma and granddad. Um, and so um, I definitely think that's happening as well. Um, you know, you can easily say, and especially if it's, even if it's just 50,000, right? Like, I mean, that's only if 50,000, but that, that could be, you know, the you know real ingredient. That's not, we're not talking, you know, three, four, 500,000, that, that has to be. Um, even if it's 20,000 from two different parents, um, you know, that's 40,000 plus their 40,000, now they've got 80,000. So I do see it happening um, across the whole spectrum, you know, even if it's a small amount. People are delaying weddings, um, you know, they're, they're, so they're saying, well, we're not going to get married. And more important for us to, you know, get a place, you know, they're delaying kids, you know, having kids later so they can save harder. Um, recent years, they've delayed holidays, right? That was a big impact in the market. You know, no overseas travel with COVID. We saw a real impact. Um, people were going, oh, I'm not going out. I'm not going to, you know, out on weekends. Um, I'm not spending anywhere near as much. I'm not going to the city. Oh, wow, I can actually save a fair whack right now. Um, and I think that's that was helping a lot with first-time buyers. And so, yeah, it's a big story, but it's not going to go away. Um, even if we introduce things like in the UK where you are now, Pete, um, and you introduced inheritance tax, so in the UK it's huge, right? Once you've got, um, I'm not sure exactly on the numbers now, but maybe once you've got more than you know, 1.5 million as a couple, right, um, everything above that gets taxed at 40%, right? Um, and so you can pay huge inheritance taxes in the UK. So it actually makes sense to try to give your money away early in the UK. Um, in Australia, there's no death duty, um, unless you've stuffed it up with super and you haven't done that smartly. But, um, yeah, that would have, that would only exasperate this, actually. It only make both your parents want to give it down faster. Um, so, yeah, it's going to be an interesting one to play out. But it unfortunately- is hard. Yeah, when you're trying to save the deposit, because you're trying to save from post-tax dollars, that's the hard thing, isn't it? And yeah. I mean, it's very hard for, to compete then with somebody whose parents says, well, here's a check for $50,000. I remember there was a quote from... Uh, Charlie Munger about oh, 20 years ago or so, where he said, you, you've basically got to do whatever you can to get that first $200,000 together, because then um, that starts compounding away for you. Maybe, you know, once you've got uh, your first investment underway, you can take the foot off the gas a bit. But until that point, you've got to beg, borrow or steal, work weekends, live on lentils, uh, share a room, do whatever you've got to do. And um, certainly I remember um, in my journey, um, it was easier in some ways. There were low deposit mortgages back then, but we definitely um, didn't want to spend the 50 grand on a wedding. And that was one thing that we just thought, yeah. well, that's not going to help us. You know, so we we did the cheap um, eloping, <laughs> eloped down the coast at a very cheap uh, wedding on the beach. But um, yeah, that's it's, it's hard. If, if you're trying to save from post tax dollars, it's difficult to compete. And as you said, uh, this isn't an issue that's going away anytime soon, and it's definitely having a, uh, an impact in the market in the uh, yeah. sub one million price bracket in particular. So you made a point there about parents helping and parents being informed and knowing what to do. I would say it's the opposite. I'm having a crack <laughs> here at all the parents here. Um, 
I know even yesterday, um, you know, a client um, three, four, maybe five years ago now, um, you know, was looking up in the eastern suburbs. Um, you know, she saved all the deposit herself um, and she bought herself an apartment. And at the time, I strongly advised her not to buy this apartment, right? It was a old um, building that had been uh, tidied up and made it look new. So it filled nice and fresh, but it was just something wrong with the smell of this apartment, right? You could just see it wasn't done that well. Um, the parents were encouraging her to buy that one because it all looked nice. It looks nice from the street. It looks nice inside. Where she could have, for her budget, got an older brick with a bit of a view, with a bit of a garden for the same price in this suburb, right? Um even yesterday, she was telling me how much she regrets that decision. Two reasons. One, the building's actually a lot of building issues have popped out. The roof needed to get changed. The, it was a lipstick job on, uh, job on a pig. Um, and the other apartments she was looking at at the time, they've gone up 25 30%. Her apartment's pretty much not gone up in those four or five years. And now, you know, life's sort of moved on um, and, she's thinking, and she's having a family. Like now she's like, well, this apartment's not going to suit me. But if she bought those other apartments with those gardens, she'd actually be okay now. Um, she doesn't have to sell. And she actually wants to upgrade into those other apartments. She loves the area. And so um, it's very common we see the bank of mum and dad also get, think it's their job to throw their opinion in. And I would say they don't really know what they're doing. They just don't see, you know, thousands of property transactions. They just see their three or four they've made over their lifestyle, lifetime. Um, and they focus on the wrong things, not the right fundamentals, because they just don't understand it. So be very careful. Take the money, but don't have to take their advice. It underscores what we always say, the importance of getting that first property right, because then you can springboard that or leverage it into your second purchase. And the whole journey just gets easier if, the, if you get the first one right. But uh, just like in the same way, if parents give money for a wedding, they want to have an input into what what you do with that money is exactly the same with property. So, yeah. um, and I think, you know, people used to have, there used to be a risk of people overstretching with their first mortgage. But actually, as you mentioned last week, that's not really happening at the moment. Um, so, because you can't really borrow the same multiple of income that you used to. So now, um, if you are getting the bank of mum and dad on board, just um, be informed on the decisions you make. So, uh, Chris, yeah. let's roll into the second story. Wages growth peaking lower than expected. Um, the ABS reported the wage price index increased 3.7% um, over the year to 31 March. It was actually 3.66, so it's pretty lackluster in the grand scheme of things. It's nice that wages are rising, and that's the highest in a decade, but it's still way below inflation. Um, also, SEEK has a bit more of a forward-looking indicator, which is advertised wages, and they've been uh, pretty strong over the year, but they're actually starting to roll over as well. Queensland was the highest 5.5% increase over the year to April, followed by New South Wales, 4.8%. It looks like New South Wales may be the strongest economy at the moment, but in any case, it looks like wages growth is going to peak at around 4% or so. Um, so obviously that has an implication for interest rates and policy. But what about, let's talk about borrowing strategies and borrowing capacity. Um, if you've got inflation going up at, say, 7% over the past year and income's only going up around 4 presumably that's going to have a, a tightening impact on what people can borrow. Yeah, it comes down to, so, um, you know, yes, you get an increase in your borrowing capacity because your salary's gone up, right? Um, 
you know, not everyone's getting the 4% as well, right? I think that's the thing with wages growth is that um, we live in a capitalist society, right? And um, everything's not even, you know, there'll be some people we see that, especially in some industries and some, um, you know, talent within that industry getting much bigger wage increases than, you know, 4%, right? And then some people, you know, maybe are stuck on awards and ends up in certain jobs and they're not going to even getting their 4%. So ultimately, I think that's the, the frustrating thing with these sort of things is it's always not even. I think um, around the borrowing capacity, so, yeah, incomes have gone up, um, especially for some people. That's offsetting the drop of the 30 40%. Um, but also the HEM, which is the household expenditure measure that the banks have to use as a minimum living expenses for um, for borrowers. And pretty much I would say the, the mortgage market's back to almost doing HEM as the, um, the expenditure for borrowers, right? Banks aren't going through bank statements. They're not looking at what your spending is and saying, you know, you're, you're uh, actually spending $12,000 a month um, and the minimum is $5,000 a month. I would also note, though, that people change their behaviours once they've got they've got a mortgage. Um, naturally, people have got, it's just like a, it's a commitment. They don't want to default. They don't want to fall behind. Ultimately, they change their lifestyle. It's exactly, that's why the, the whole higher interest rates um, will work. And we can see that with, you know, credit card spending recently and things like that, Pete, as you, you would know. So, um yeah, borrowing capacity is tight, right? HEM's gone up quite dramatically, and HEM's much higher than it was when I started in broking eight, nine years ago. It was uh, ridiculously low before. It was like unjustifiably low. Um, and the banks loved that because that could lend you more money. Um, that all got tightened up, and it's much more realistic, I feel. And even now, clients say, actually, that's too high. We're not even spending that. We're not going to even need that. Um, we're quite frugal. We live a pretty basic life. So, um, I would say that the wage growth thing absolutely must must be peaking. We, we're seeing clients come to us with redundancy um, quite a, a lot at the moment. Um, and, you know, a quick update from an email, I'm pre-approved, but I've been made redundant. Or, you know, there's some layoffs happening at work. I really want to see what's happening in the next few months. Um, uh, that confidence to sort of quit, you know, go to another job, um, go back into probation and get a pay rise. I do think that worker mobility must be slowing down. You know, there is obviously talk of recession and, um, you know, and so you only do that when you're confident. People weren't confident in COVID, right? Um, then there was a period where people, the great resignation was all over the papers, right? Everyone's got to quit their job and go get a pay rise. That just hasn't happened from my understanding. Um, and that's where wage rises, wage rises come, right? You don't go to your, your boss for a wage increase and they'll say, oh, you know, here's 5%. You go to a recruiter and then, you know, um, someone competes for you, you might get a 10, 20% bump, right? Because you're on the marketplace and you can, um, you know, you know, figure out what your value is. So, um, yeah, that's my view on wage growth. I definitely think it must be slowing down just because ultimately employees are, are a little bit less confident to switch job and, um, and ask for more money. It never made any uh, sense to me when banks were checking uh, $10 line items on bank statements, especially for something that's potentially a 25 or 30 year mortgage. Yeah. Because as you said, the moment you settle on the property, well, you've got to, your spending patterns are going to change. Firstly, you've got to furnish the place quite often. But then, as you said, um, the, the mortgage becomes priority number one. And maybe the the Netflix account gets dropped if, if needs be. But anyway, they've thankfully moved away from that line by line analysis of expenditure. Now, I think if you're looking uh, to increase your income, um, I was always somebody who was aspirational, wanted to get ahead. And I used to find that changing jobs every two or three years could actually help to accelerate um, your salary increases if you shopped around. I think the other thing um, you can do is obviously upskill uh, in the uh, lingo or terminology. If you can 
improve your skill set, that obviously is going to help. But back in our day, the, the big thing was going, going to work in the hot sector, which, uh, of course, in the mining boom years, was going to work in the resources sector, especially if you could travel around a bit. Um, that was certainly something I was able to use to significantly increase my earning capacity um, because that was the hot industry of the time. But at the moment, maybe tech or probably in the future, AI and sectors like that. Um, are there any other factors that people need to consider, Chris? Um, I'm sure, for example, um, you know, obviously your borrowing capacity is going to change if you later switch to become self-employed or start a business. I know that was one thing in my journey that when we were both uh, PAYG, uh, higher high rate taxpayers, it's like, well, we've got this borrowing capacity, you kind of need to use it or lose it. But are there any other factors people need to consider in terms of income? Uh, when they're looking to work out a borrowing strategy? Look, I think you can definitely, um, investing in your human capital and emotional capital, I would say, like, you know, studying, getting world experience, you know, world knowledge, um, you know, really looking for mentors, looking at for people that are, you know, what's valuable within your industry, you know, and maybe even swapping industry. Maybe you don't really, you fell into a career, but you don't love it and maybe there's a better um, career for you longer term that you're in love that you invest in your human capital more and more and then you build knowledge and so I do think you do need to win the the income game a little bit um, and I, unfortunately some jobs um, even though they're the biggest value to society don't also attach the biggest income and so um, yeah it's, it's a real fine balance that um, yeah I mean if you're looking to increase your income and you can't do it through work you can definitely do things like side hustles and second jobs Usually you need a bit of um, runs on the board. So you need probably usually three to six months at least to prove that that income's sustainable um, and that can give you a short-term buffer. Um, you know, got to be careful around bonuses. Like if you have got get bonuses at a job and then you quit to an all commissions, you know, and you quit to another job where, you know, they might need 12 months or 18 months to use that borrowing capacity. So um, got to be really careful around that. Starting a new business, you're really wiping out lending for you know, I would say two to four years, depending on how the, the business takes off. Um, and so you really want to potentially do lending before that for lots of reasons. It's easier to borrow in a business. It's um, And so, um, yeah, there's lots going on. You've really just got to understand the game of borrowing capacities and how small tweaks increase your capacity. I, could, I guess an easy way to think about it, if you get a $20,000 pay increase, if you times that by, let's it's usually six times, but right now it's probably five times. So if you get a 20K increase in your borrowing capacity, that's maybe a hundred grand increase um, to your uh, 20K increase to your salary. That's a hundred K increase to your borrowing capacity. Um, so a multiple of five. So um, or if you get a bonus, it's five times the bonus, for example. So um, that's an easy way for people to think about um, how much you've impacted an increase in salary increases capacity. Thanks, Chris. Yeah, I did notice actually. Um, I think it was a CBA report this week that, of course, it's not just salary income in the economy and investment incomes have increased quite significantly. I guess a big part of that would be rents at the moment. Um, and yeah, some good points there. Um, some people um, take a, a period working overseas, maybe in a lower tax country to save up some dollars. That was certainly a part of my journey. Um, difficult, though, because when you travel, you want to spend and enjoy yourself at the same time. So always uh, striking that balance. Hey, that's a good so, point. So we um, see lots of clients in this, um, you know, because we get clients that are, you know, wanting to go and get some world experience or they want to go and live in London for a few years or the US or Singapore or, you know, lots of different places. And, you know, what we find is they sometimes come to us a little bit too late, to be honest. That's always been the plan. And, you know, sometimes it's waiting on a job. Sometimes it's waiting on a friend going there or a family member or, you know, or 
just something, or maybe it's when they finally finish some study or something, right? Um, what I think you do is if you're thinking about that, bring your property decisions before that because what happens when you go away, it happened to me, I thought I'd go for one or two years. I end up going for four. Some people go for six, eight, 10, 12 years, and then they end up coming back when they get to the kids' stage, right, or even after that, a couple of years into it. And what ends up happening is they've gone and they've earned money. Yeah, they've enjoyed themselves, but they've got no assets growing um, while they're away. And if they could have just, you know, bought a good asset before they went away, structured it the right way, um, they could have maintained, had exposure to the market. So when they come back, they're not trying to just buy at current prices. They've had at least some market exposure. And I do think it's a it's an issue. Some people try to outsave the Australian property market. This is one of the things in Hong Kong or Singapore. People earn great money, low tax rates, and they can't save and invest the money to outperform a leveraged property in the Australian market. And then when they're over there, they try to borrow money and it's really hard to borrow money on overseas income. It's maybe Mm. two or three times salary um, versus, you know, six times salary here, let's say. Um, It's really hard. So And big um, deposits as well sometimes. Absolutely. Yeah. Sometimes higher mortgage rates I've seen. Uh, Yeah, it's a good point you make. I think my wife came to Brisbane uh, I think it was 1996 or 97, and she was only going to stay for six months, and here we are, 2023. She hasn't gone too far. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, important lessons, things can change on the journey, of course. So, uh, Chris, let's wrap it up with the third story of the week, millionaire migration. This is something that basically stopped for a couple of years um, because of all the restrictions on movement. Uh, so Henley Global Citizens Report, uh, they... Um, Got out the report for 2022. So after a lull, millionaire migration rocketed back in 2022, 88,000 movers. And for 2023, a projected 125,000 movers. Um, I think a millionaire these days, certainly in Aussie dollar terms, probably isn't what it used to be. I think a high net worth individual these days, certainly if you look at the Credit Suisse Global Wealth Report, probably 5 million US would be what you'd call a higher net worth individual rather than just a dollar millionaire. Uh, But it's always interesting to see these trends. Uh, Where are people leaving? Uh, Well, Russia, China and India um, are the places where the millionaires are leaving. I mean, the obvious reasons would be conflict. Um, uh, Certainly from Russia, people who've been able to get away have done. And people also like to look at uh, security of their wealth in terms of where they move to. I think lifestyle is sometimes lower on the list than you might assume. And, you know, things like tax efficiency. I think very often people are just looking for, well, to get safety and security of their wealth. Um, So just running through the list, Chris, uh, Russia minus 15,000, China lost 10,000 millionaires, India lost 8,000. I was interested to see Hong Kong now is losing a lot of millionaires um, because of a change of uh, structure there, change of system and government. um, And that's not really as friendly to Westerners as it used to be. Um, But interesting to see Australia number two on the list, just behind the United Arab Emirates, which I guess is part of a a tax haven. Um, So there's going to be some impacts here. Australia always seems to score well on these lists, big influx of the ultra wealthy. Yeah, and I think we've got to remember one of the smaller countries, right? I mean, um, and I think the other thing to to see here is in uh, 2020, 2021, even 2022, you know, that those numbers will write down. But coming out of the COVID, people have got the ability to travel, um, confidence around borders, um, and you can see it's really jumping back up higher than what it was pre-COVID. And um, there's always a, 
a view of how we're going to look in the global scale, like how attractive are we going to be? We've got very high tax rates. So, you know, places like UAE and Singapore, they can they can do it, but they, can, they have to offer really low tax rates. Um, people come to Australia, we're not selling low tax rates, right? Um, and so we're winning on lifestyle. And um, yeah, so I think that's a, that's a key win for us longer term is bringing money in because not only do they bring their own money and they bring their family, they invest in our economy, they start businesses, they create jobs, et cetera. So, um, yeah, it's one pe- uh, position, you know, getting people to come here, but then if they've also got financial wealth, they're not, a, um, you know, using our system and our Medicare and our et cetera. So, um, yeah, I think it's uh, it's great news for the property market, if you would say, you know, because ultimately that's more money. They come here and they, they leverage it. It's interesting to read in Henley's report. So the UAE became a millionaire magnet um, with 4,000 high net worth individuals flowing in. And they attributed that to uh, really the the government over there is targeting uh, immigration policies that are tailored really to attract private wealth and international talent. Australia, we always talk about, well, it's the coffee and the beaches. But Henley said, well, the things that really have been attracting millionaire migrants to Australia, low cost of healthcare, which is an interesting one, the lack of inheritance tax, which we just touched on before, mm. it's very, very different in Australia. And um, it's a challenge for people like me with assets in two countries because you know, obviously I was born overseas and now live in Australia because the inheritance tax is way more punitive in Europe than it is in Australia. And Australia's generally uh, prosperous economy is another big uh, pull factor. Um, and as you mentioned, I, I think uh, we're starting to see a lot more foreign buyers or foreign money back in yeah. the markets now. It's a, uh, you know, there's there's restrictions around what foreign buyers can and can't do. But then the more you sort of get people coming in from overseas, whether it's international students or tourists, there's just more channels for funds to come into the country. And we're definitely seeing that in recent months. And a number of the surveys like NAB and others have picked on pick that up that we're getting Chinese and Indian money coming in Sydney and Melbourne again. Yeah, it's interesting, Pete, you said around, um, you know, money sort of flowing around and expats moving back. We've actually noticed that. So, you know, obviously we've got lots of clients coming to us and we can see who purchased. But just if I look at recent months, a lot of our bigger purchases, I'm talking purchases over two mil, um, have been expat money. It has been, you know, Australians or, you know, completely um, new people to Australia. Or maybe they came here for uni 20 years ago and they've lived in London or Singapore or Hong Kong or something. Um, and they've got an Australian passport and they're coming back um, or PR. Absolutely, I think this is starting to play out. And so, um, and, and that's actually a lot of it's new money. So they've got high paid salaries. They've got a bit of wealth overseas. They're coming back here with decent deposits and decent incomes. Um, and, you know, they can really sort of compete because um, they haven't got any type of housing option. So when you look at the um, the Australian sort of upgrader at the moment, a lot of people have got a house and they need to upgrade a house. So they've got to sell. But when people are coming back from overseas with good incomes and with cash, they can enter the market straight away. And I think that's a lot of the people driving those transactions in the, you know, the the bigger housing markets in our capital cities. I think if you look at the sort of the annual figures, a few thousand millionaires, it doesn't sound a lot. But if you look over the last two decades, around 80,000 millionaires have moved to the land down under over 20 years or so. So that that's a lot of people. And it's not just the direct impact, it's those channels allowing more wealth um, to come in. And look, I know I'm biased, but um, when you think about all the countries you could live in the world, Australia is right up at the top. If you're looking to bring up a family, somebody that's safe and secure, good education, 
good lifestyle, you know, and yes, the coffee and beaches don't hurt. Um, Australia, countries like Canada and New Zealand are scoring very high on those lists. So um, I don't think uh, it's going away anytime soon. And I know they often say Australia is a lucky country, but pretty well positioned for millionaire migration going forward, I guess. Absolutely, Pete. What a good uh, good week. Three good stories. You had the um, the parents helping out the kids. You've got wage growth. You know how there has been there. Certain states stronger than others. Um, and obviously a good conversation there to wrap it up around um, immigration and millionaires moving to down under. Um, next week I think is going to be awesome, right? I think we we'll talk about what the governments are doing around first home buys, land tax, stamp duty. Lots is happening. Budgets are coming out. Um, you know, parliaments are you know. Um, happening so let's have a good chat about that next week and see what else pops up there is a bit happening and we'll keep following that working from home or back to the office story as it unfolds over the weeks ahead by the way send us your property questions via the link in the show notes or even if you just want to say good day uh, we really like to get your feedback and also it gives us some ideas of what you want us to cover um, so if you've got any questions drop them in if you want to chat to chris at the newly rebranded Blusk. Uh, Chris is the king at answering all your mortgage-broking questions. And you can track me down on my daily blog, Pete Wardgen Blogspot, or um, way too active on social media on Twitter. Although being on the European time zone, just slightly different times of day at the moment. So, uh, Chris, thanks so much for joining this week and looking forward to chatting next episode. Look forward to it, Pete. And um, happy Sunday, everyone. Thanks for tuning into the Australian Property Podcast. If you love the show, why not subscribe or leave us a review on Apple or Spotify? And if you want to work with me, Amy, Pete, or Chris, you'll find links in your podcast player to get in contact with us. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Australian Property Podcast. We're huge advocates of getting the right advice at the right time from the right people. That's why it's important to understand that this podcast episode contained general financial information only. It is not designed to be specific or personalized to your financial, tax or legal situation. With property, the check sizes are pretty big, so it's important you get advice from a licensed and trusted professional before acting on the information you hear in RAS podcasts. Thanks again for listening. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest, now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service. Designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.